Hello, we know you'll all enjoy the show on WDW Radio. Hi ho, it's time for his next show. It's been a while, so have a smile. Hi ho, hi ho, hi ho, hi ho, hi ho. Just sit there in your row. It's time to listen to the loo. Hi ho, hi ho, hi ho, hi ho. Welcome back, and thanks for tuning in once again to the WDW Radio Show. This is show number 14 for the week of May 13th, 2007. I'm your host, Lou Mangello, and let me start off by wishing all mothers and moms-to-be a very happy Mother's Day, especially to my mom and my wife, who embody, to me, what a wonderful mother truly is. Thank you for all you do. Anyway, on to this week's show, where we have all kinds of fun segments for you. We're going to start off, as always, with some Walt Disney World news and views, where I'll talk about some changes coming to some elements of the Walt Disney World transportation system, as well as to the FastPass system. We'll also discuss some recent rumors that are now official, and on this week's trip to the Walt Disney World rumor mill, I'll talk about some rumors for an extinct attraction in the Magic Kingdom, the Leave a Legacy sculptures in Epcot, and more. Jeff Pepper joins me once again in a very detailed discussion of our next in the seven wonders of Walt Disney World. This time, we explore the history, trivia, and significance of a true iconic wonder, Cinderella Castle. I'll also announce the next entry in the Seven Wonders series, as I want you to be a part of the discussion and show. This will give you the chance to talk about something that I think we all agree is truly a magical part of Walt Disney World. A listener email was the catalyst for this week's Best of the Best at Walt Disney World segment, as Pam Forrester and I discussed the best resort strategies for parties of four or more when traveling to Walt Disney World. Speaking of your feedback, I'll answer more of your emails and play your voicemails at the end of the show, so sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. WDW Radio Show News and Views Report Live from the WDW Radio Studios in Scotch Plains, New Jersey We'll start off this week's News and Views segment with a discussion of some transportation changes taking place around Walt Disney World First, Monorail Lime appears to be the guinea pig in an experiment testing a new handrail configuration On this train, The center aisle has been removed from all the cars and replaced instead with four singular poles. Currently, Monorail Lime is running on the express route, and I hope to get some photos of this when I head down next Thursday. 
The bus system is also finally getting its much-rumored upgrade with the implementation of new automated spiels and location-specific music tracks being played during your trip. For example, there are reports of buses heading to Typhoon Lagoon, which are treated to some Beach Boys music in the background. Now, for those that enjoy the legendary jokes, trivia, and conversations with the bus drivers, it's unclear how this may be affected and if the new system allows for some unscripted interaction. Now, honestly, and all, although I have not personally traveled the buses in some time, I fear that I might miss that human interaction and the back and forth that the drivers afford you, much as is now the case on attractions like Living with the Land. Sure, you know, on that ride, they all give the same spiel, but there was always something about having the cast member there that I really enjoyed. And although I know how fun and helpful the drivers often have been, I'm sure guests' reaction is going to be positive to the changes on the bus as they're now being treated to some enhanced experience uh, without the maybe unknowns that come with entertainment, quote-unquote, being provided by somebody whose primary job really is just to drive the bus, get you from A to B. Well, think of it this way, too. Uh, With the old system, without this new automated spiel, your bus trip was almost like a a trip on the Jungle Cruise, where your skipper or your driver really could have made or broken your voyage. Now, obviously, it's not as important when you're just on the bus trying to get back to your hotel or trying to get back to your car, but this is no longer probably going to be the case with these new spiels. Again, I'd be very curious to see how this human interaction, if at all, plays out and if the drivers can still talk to the guests. There are some changes possibly underway for the FastPass system, as listeners have sent me images and emails about new FastPasses showing up right now over at the Kilimanjaro Safaris, while cast members have also rumored that similar changes are going to be coming to other attractions in Disney's Animal Kingdom, likely Expedition Everest, and the studio's two biggest draws, Tower of Terror and Rock and Roller Coaster. So, what are these changes? Well, they appear to be simply cosmetic at this time, although it's clear something bigger is probably in the works. The tickets now sport a larger, bolder font used for the distribution date and, more importantly, return time. A barcode has also been added to the side of the ticket, which is also a bit larger than its predecessor. We will definitely keep a close eye on this to see what changes, if any, Disney is bringing to the FastPass system, what these barcodes may be used for, and if the cast members are going to start maybe paying closer attention to both the date of distribution as well as the return time. Listener Randy sent me an email saying that the outside of Planet Hollywood is having some work done on it as well. A cast member said it would be completed by uh, midsummer and did not know if the inside was going to be refurbished or not. I have not heard anything about the refurbishment of the inside, although the outside is getting a bit of a sprucing up. I have seen some photos of Planet Hollywood with some covering on the outside, although the restaurant is open during the refurbishment. And now in the rumors that are now news segment, I am happy to report that some rumors I spoke about earlier are now confirmed as news. First, Disney has announced this week that the Tusker House restaurant over at Disney's Animal Kingdom is being converted from a quick service restaurant to a buffet. It's going to offer a character breakfast buffet called Donald's Safari Breakfast and a lunch and dinner buffet as well. Hours of operation are going to be 8 a.m. to 10.30 a.m. for the character breakfast and 11.30 a.m. until park close for the lunch and dinner buffet. The restaurant is going to have both indoor and outdoor seating, much as it does now, but the lunch and dinner buffet will not be a character meal. This new meal is going to start on November 18th. Obviously, you must make reservations 180 days in advance or later. Uh, After the refurb is over, Kusafiri Coffee Shop and Bakery will continue to serve pastries and coffees from the outdoor window. And now for the bad news. 
with the character breakfast opening over at Tusker House, Donald's Breakfastosaurus over at Restaurantosaurus will be discontinued after November 5th. Restaurantosaurus will continue to be open for lunch and dinner as quick service from 10.30 a.m. until park close. But if you liked or want to see Donald's Breakfastosaurus, you must get in before November 5th. Let's just move, as long as we're talking about rumors, right on over to the Walt Disney World rumor mill. The first rumor I have is one that I was going to touch on some time ago, but I didn't have enough information at the time. But I received an email this week from a listener to corroborate some other information I have. So here's the email and the rumor. Hi, Lou. I have a rumor for you that I picked up from a Magic Kingdom cast member when I took the backstage Magic Tour in January. According to a tour guide on the Keys to the Kingdom tour, the Magic Kingdom is considering a way to put one of the old Skyway stations to use and give you a chance to meet a pixie besides. They're apparently considering converting the old Fantasyland station to a location for a Tinkerbell meet and greet. The idea is that you proceed through the walkways and into the old station. You'll shrink to pixie size, and at the end of your walk, you'll be able to meet Miss Tinkerbell life-size and in-person for photos. Of course, you have to take any rumor from a cast member with a a pound of salt, but given that Disneyland and Walt Disney World have started featuring a life-size tink in recent parades, and since Disney's got the new Fairies product line, and with the Tinkerbell movie coming eventually, this rumor may be plausible. Hopefully, you can find something out about it for us. Thanks for the show. Keep up the great work. And that comes from listener Paul Schnevelin. Paul, thank you very much for the email. As I always say, timing is everything because I actually spoke to somebody this week who is involved with a Tinkerbell movie. And I do believe that this rumor may come true in some form or fashion in the future. However, it very well may depend on the production of the movie itself and the release date of it, which has been delayed, as we know, for a variety of reasons. But I think this is a great idea, not only because I'd like to see the venue used again, but I, I love the concept of being, uh, you know, feeling that they're being shrunk down to get into this building to meet Tinkerbell, who we know is very small. Now we get to see her life size. I think it's great, and I would love the opportunity to have a Tinkerbell meet and greet. I spoke briefly in the past about some things happening in downtown at Pleasure Island and the entire downtown Disney area, but here are a couple of more rumored upgrades. First, it looks like Disney is in the home stretch with their negotiations of several operational agreements with a number of as-yet-unnamed third parties to complete Phase 2 of their Pleasure Island refurb. These third parties would take over operations of several of the retail establishments that now sit empty. And I'll put a picture up in the show notes. Thank you to Randy again, who did some investigation for me last week at Pleasure Island and took some photos. Uh, Disney has not released the identities of who they are negotiating with, but I would expect some official news within the next few weeks. One of my favorite quick eateries in all of Walt Disney World, and especially in downtown Disney, Wolfgang Puck Cafe Express will apparently be getting some additional outside seating space. I love the food there. I think they have great pastas. It's out of the way. A quick table service. It's something that I usually do the day that I'm leaving before I go back to the airport. That's usually a place that I hit, and uh, it's kind of like my last meal on property. Often not crowded, but they do have a nice, like I said, outside seating area that could use some additional space. Finally, over at Downtown Disney, new parking signs may start showing up soon to help alleviate some of the parking confusion and hassle that plague Downtown Disney, most notably Pleasure Island, on the weekends. These new signs will allegedly provide continuous updates of lot capacity as well as directions so you know exactly what lots are full, which direction to go in, etc. There is no timeline as yet. I will definitely try and get more information when I'm there next weekend. Randy also let me know about another rumor when he said that Saturday we went to Animal Kingdom and took a ride on the Kilimanjaro Safari. There's some construction going on in the left loading area. 
I couldn't get an answer, but they have broken up the concrete there. Well, I think what that is is that work is continuing to retrofit these loading docks to accommodate that additional row of seating that we mentioned earlier uh, on the Kilimanjaro Safari trucks. That is supposed to uh, open up, you know, attraction-wide in midsummer of this year. This is, like I said, going to add an additional row of seat to increase capacity on the safari. Disney has supposedly entered into a merchandising agreement with the Rawlings Group, and they're going to offer some custom baseball equipment and clothing both at the Team Mickey's Athletic Club retail location as well as other places I would suspect around property. I'd look for more to come maybe in the Emporium at the Magic Kingdom relatively quickly from the Rawlings Company. Our last rumor this week is about the Leva Legacy sales booths over in Epcot's Future World, which are supposedly going to be removed from the courtyard in front of Spaceship Earth. Right now, there is one booth remaining near the base of the attraction, while another booth is located right at the, the entrance of the park over off on the right-hand side. Now, while either you shouldn't get your hopes up or be disappointed, I don't think the monoliths themselves are going to be taken away, but it does beg the question of how they intend to continue selling these if one or both of these booths is going to be taken you know, away for good. Again, the, the Leva Legacy statues allowed you to have your image etched in steel incorporated onto the sculpture at the entrance to Epcot right at the threshold. But I can't really speak as to how well or how poorly sales have done. The removal of this booth right in front of the uh, Spaceship Earth, it does beg the question of what is going on, uh, if this is something they plan on discontinuing as a whole. Obviously, as we hear anything further, we will definitely let you know. And if you have a rumor that you want to share or discuss, by all means, email it to me call the voicemail or post in the WDW radio forums over at DisneyWorldTrivia.com. This week's Best of the Best segment was sparked by an email that I received from a listener and really is less about something that Walt Disney World is the best at, but really a best vacation planning tip and the email reads as follows lou i really enjoy listening to your podcast each week could you provide some information or tips for staying on property with large families my family of six just returned from a fantastic week-long trip in walt disney world where we stayed in one of the new all-star family music suites the room provided us the much-needed two bathrooms and we were able to fit all four kids on the fold-out beds in the living area also it was great having the kitchenette in the morning for a quick breakfast in the hotel room before heading off to the park the close quarters didn't bother us, but it could be a problem if the kids get bigger. What other options are there for staying on property? Which hotels, if any, have adjoining room? Which hotels have suites well-suited for large families? We'd like to stay in one of the nicer hotels, but it seems they become too cost-prohibitive when trying to accommodate more than four people. Maybe this would even make a great topic for one of your segments? Keep up the great work, and that came from Brett in Indiana. Well, Brett, ask, and ye shall receive. In this edition of the best of the best at Walt Disney World, I wanted to bring on Pam Forrester again from the Magic for Less Travel because I really wanted to touch on something that I thought she might be able to help out with, and that is the best resort strategy for families that go down with more than four people because it's a whole different way to plan your vacation. And there's a whole a lot of different factors that need you need to take into account, and you got to really plan ahead no matter when you go. But for a family this size, you really need to have a good strategy in place before you go down. So I wanted to figure out the best resort strategy for families more than four. Pam Forrester, welcome back to the show. 
Thanks so much for having me on again, Lou. And I thought this was one that, that you would be well qualified to handle because this is what you do on a daily basis. So give us some, some information and some tips that you think are, are helpful for families that go down with more than four people. I'd be happy to. And I have to tell you, this is a question we get a lot. Um, there are a lot of families that have more than four people in them. And the consideration is there are only certain resorts that can accommodate more than four people in a room. Um, just as kind of a base here, all of the resorts in Disney World can accommodate parties of four and a child under three in a crib. Um, but once you get more than that, you have to start, you know, weighing your options. At the value resorts, you, you know, their standard rooms, they're only going to accommodate four and that child in a crib, except for the new family suites. Um, and that's something I'll talk about in a little bit. At the moderate resorts, most of them are only going to accommodate the four plus the child in a crib, except for the rooms in the Alligator Bayou section of Quarter Orleans Riverside. And as you probably know, that's because they have a trundle bed um, that's able to accommodate a small child. Typically, they say nine or under can fit in that trundle bed. But um, those rooms with the trundle bed at Quarter Orleans Riverside can accommodate five um, and that's one of your that's your only option at the moderate resorts for um, a larger group and we should say five people that that normally get along very well exactly <laughs> i'm it, not it's, saying it's tight this... quarters it's it's a kind of right. tight quarters so <laughs> just because it can accommodate five doesn't mean it's going to be this comfortable <laughs> plush area it's still the same size as the rooms in the other moderate resorts they just made that accommodation with the extra trundle bed which is basically just a bed that pulls out from underneath um the main double bed that's there the best test of a family's love is to put them in a small room you know for a week put five people in a room for a week and see how they survive exactly exactly <laughs> it may make that drive home you know 22 hours somewhat more difficult <laughs> nobody talks buddy <laughs> bring your ipod that's my best advice dvd yeah. players and ipods <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I definitely agree. Um, the category of resorts above the moderate resorts, the deluxe resorts, good news is most of them can accommodate five in a standard room. You're going to be paying more for those resorts, but you are going to have um, some extra rooms. The two resorts that do not have rooms that can accommodate five in a standard resort are the Animal Kingdom Lodge and the Wilderness Lodge you will have to upgrade to a deluxe room at both of those resorts to be able to accommodate five. Um, another choice for guests that are maybe looking for a little bit more room um, and maybe kitchen facilities as well are the Fort Wilderness cabins. Now these can accommodate up to six guests with a child in a crib. Um, six guests and in addition a child in a crib I should say. Um, the Fort Wilderness cabins are, they have a, a, a separate bedroom that will have a double bed and bunk beds. And then they also have um, what's called a Murphy bed in the living room area, a bed that will pull down from the wall um, for sleeping at night. So, um, and it also has kitchen, um, a kitchen, and it also has a grill outside. So it may be a good choice for those who are looking to save a little money maybe have breakfast or some other meals in their room and also have the the larger party size to consider. And it's a pretty unique experience too, staying over at the cabins. I mean, Fort Wilderness is pretty neat 
um, for a lot of reasons. You're close to Hoopty Doo. There's a lot of things you to do outside the parks. Um, and again, you're talking value season. You're talking a rate of about $250 a night. Right. I, yeah. And it may be one of your better options for a larger group. Um, and I agree with you. It has a very nostalgic feel to it. You know, this is one of the original Walt Disney World resorts there. And you know what? You really feel that, I think, when you visit. Um, it's very unique and it, it just it feels very Disney to me. You know, um, I feel like you can kind of feel Walt's hand and all of that. Um, it's very nostalgic. And plus, another way to save money, too, you have the Trails End Buffeteria there. Another, because of, of its location, it's something that's often overlooked, very, very reasonably priced, all-you-can-eat buffet, very, very good food. you got hoop doo there. You've got the marina uh, there as well. you got biking, pony rides. So... Um, in addition to saving money, it might just be something fun to do as well as a family. I agree. It's a great option for those larger groups. And speaking of larger groups, the accommodations that are going to be able to hold the most guests are the ones in the Disney Vacation Club resorts. And these would be um, Old Key West and Boardwalk Villas and Beach Club Villas and Wilderness Lodge Villas and the New Animal Kingdom Lodge Villas. Um the vacation club resorts can accommodate five guests or more in a two, but you have to move up to a two bedroom. Um, more than four guests cannot be accommodated in a one bedroom. And when you're talking about moving up to the two bedroom, you're talking about a big jump in price. So this may not be your best option, but it is the option that's going to afford you the most room too. Just, um, just, just, I'm sorry, just for, for comparative purposes, I'll just use Wilderness Lodge, for example, uh, value season rate. A okay. studio would be about 305 A one-bedroom villa would be about 415 And a two-bedroom villa would be 590 Right. So that's a huge jump in price. Um, the studio is not going to have a full kitchen. It is going to have a kitchenette. And it's only going to be a, able to accommodate four plus a child in a crib. The one bedroom is also only going to be able to accommodate four plus a child in the crib, but you have a separate master bedroom, you have a full kitchen, you have a washer and dryer. These are all huge pluses in my book. The two bedroom is going to give you the two separate bedrooms. The, the master bedroom is going to have a king bed. The second bedroom will have two queen-size beds, and there will be a pull-out sofa that is amazingly comfortable in the living room. So that gives you a lot of room. There's also the um, grand villa, which can accommodate 12, but is not frequently available to guests who are not DVC members. And it's not um, available at all the resorts either. Exactly. You're right. Old Key so, West has it. Saratoga Springs has it. Uh, and I believe just the, the boardwalk villas are the only ones right. that have them. Um, so that's, you know, and all of the Disney Vacation Club accommodations are, you know, the availability is based on what members do or do not have rented during that time. So it's not, you know, you can't always bank on having that availability. Um, but it is, you know, a nice option for people who really need that extra space. And, you know, there's a lot of us out there who space is a consideration when you have older kids and things like that. Um, another option I wanted to give guests is to consider getting two connecting rooms at either a value or a moderate resort. If you really need the extra space, two rooms at even a value resort is going to give you 
two separate rooms. You can, you know, if you have older kids and you can close the door and not worry, you know, about them. I think that's a big plus. And you get two bathrooms, which can also be a big plus when you're vacationing together. It's those kind of things that may help your sanity a little bit. Um, I would say that second bathroom might be worth the price of admission right it there. Might, <laughs> it might. It's these little considerations that, you know, make th- make your vacation a little better, I think. So um, I think that's another good option for people who have, you know, more than four in their party. And Disney is really, I think, trying to listen to guests in this area. Um, there's been, you know, a lot of discussion about larger family sizes. And with that came, you know, the the um, family or family suites at the um, All-Stars, which I mentioned briefly. And um, I think that that's their attempt to accommodate those larger guests. And um, we'll, we'll see in, in the conversions and things that they do. If that continues, I also wanted to mention real quickly that the new villas at Animal Kingdom Lodge, um, in their one bedrooms, they are making one bedrooms that can accommodate five plus one child in a crib. So, hmm. again, this is something that Disney's listening to, trying to make accommodations to, and I think we'll see more of that in the future. Yeah, you know, there's so many factors that have to you have to weigh when going down with a family of four. And obviously, the reason why we cover the resorts first is because that's of paramount importance. You know, where are you going to stay? But there are other things you need to look at, too. You need to look at what time of year you're going to go, you know, if you want to try and save money. Because the difference between value season, say, and holiday season, I mean, you know, we'll just use the, the resorts, for example. If you're talking about maybe, um, we were talking about one of the, the villas. The difference in price, for example, for a beach club villa, for a two-bedroom villa in value season is $595. During holiday season is $1,105. Right. So, And that's also going to affect things. You know, you need to look at crowd levels. You need to look at, you know, tickets, um, what kind of promotions are going on, whether it be free dining, whether it be uh, if you have little kids and they have little ones travel time, things like that. Um, and, and that's something where a travel agent like you, Pam, would really come into play because you'll be able to kind of take all those things into consideration, give people advice as to what they need to do to really get the most value for their dollar get and obviously get the most enjoyable vacation for everybody involved. I agree. I mean, I know that everyone has restrictions on their vacations, but if your dates are flexible, we will definitely be happy to work with you to look at a couple different dates and figure out which one may be the best for your needs, you know, um, and, you know, guests just have to share that information with us to let us know that they're flexible and we'll be happy to make recommendations. I think if you can travel during value season, I think there are so many reasons to do that. But at the same time, I've been there during the holidays and it is magical. So I certainly understand why so many people travel during that time. And, you know, each vacationer is different. You have to look at what's important to you. Um, But definitely that's a good way to try and save money, especially with a larger group. And another thing to consider, I think, when you're traveling with a larger group is to um, get everyone's input, no matter how young, um, just to make them feel like they're part of the process. Um, From, you know, looking at the resort choices to dining choices to so many different things, I, I think that that's a great way to keep those, to keep everyone involved and happy with your choices. We're eating here. You guys cool with that? Okay, good. <laughs> We're staying here. Everybody happy? Fine, let's move along. <laughs> yeah, wait. Boo. Here's your itinerary. This is what we're doing. <laughs> no, you know it's going to be like, Daddy. <laughs> Come on, kids. Six o'clock. Up and at them. You're on vacation. Let's go. 
<laughs> Why are we eating where I want to eat? <laughs> the Magic Kingdom opens in three hours. we got to get going. Move it. <laughs> yeah. So you're Tie your shoes in the car. Come on. Got to go. Got to go. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, just taking all that into consideration. Yeah. there's. I mean, we could make, you know, two shows, two full shows out of all the things to consider, especially, like you said, when you talk about a large family and different things you do need to really factor in when planning out to to get the most value for your dollar, to make sure everybody has a good time, uh, and to make sure you survive the, the, you know, the five to seven or ten days together in the rooms <laughs> um, with each other. But again, that's why I wanted you to come on, Pam, because I think you are... Uh, you're a great resource for that kind of information. And even if somebody has any kind of specific questions, I think they can they can forward them along to you, and you should be able to help them out um, whether they're planning a trip to Disney World or Disneyland or, or the Disney. Definitely, we're happy to go over all the options because there are just so many options. And again, I keep saying this because I, I think it's important to note. You know, by getting in touch with a travel agency, whether it be Pam or somebody else, their services are free. Uh, there is no premium associated with it, so there really is no reason not to go with them. And just choose wisely. I mean, choose somebody, like I said, I'm a big fan of Pam Services. I've known her a long time. And their attention to real personalized attention and, and, and detail and customer service is what I think sets them apart. So I appreciate you coming on. I'm going to put a link up on the website, but again, their site is The Magic for Less Travel. Uh, you can go and visit again. And uh, Pam, thank you again so much for coming on and, and helping out with this. Thanks again, Lou. I'm always happy to come on. Honoring greatness in imagination and the magic that enthralls us all, it's time for the seven wonders of Walt Disney World. When I announced that I'd be creating an unofficial list of the seven wonders of Walt Disney World based on the concept of the seven wonders of the modern world, there were, and still are, as people are really still submitting them, certain things that were mentioned in an overwhelming number of submissions. One of them was the very first wonder that I covered, and that was Spaceship Earth. Um, That was really almost on everybody's email or forum post, whatnot. The other overwhelming mention? Well, let me ask you to do this. Close your eyes, except if you're driving, and if I say Walt Disney World, what's the first image that comes to mind? If you're like me, it probably involves some sort of food item, but if you're like most other normal people, you may see an an image of our next wonder, and that's Cinderella Castle. So, with the help of Jeff Pepper, I want to explore the history, trivia, and significance of this true, iconic wonder of Walt Disney World. Jeff, welcome back, buddy. Hey, glad to be here, Lou. Thanks for having me. All right. So when I said close your eyes and, and said Walt Disney World, what did you think of, assuming that you really did it? <laughs> <laughs> well, of course. Of course, we think of Cinderella Castle. But we can. Yeah. yeah good, good answer, buddy. <laughs> if you would have said Astro Orbital, I, I would have been in some real trouble. <laughs> but, you know, the, the funny thing is, is when I was listening to you say that, I mean, all that was coming into mind is not just Walt Disney World. I mean, the castle is Disney. I mean, next to Mickey Mouse, the, the the iconic symbol of the Walt Disney Company, pretty much on most levels, is the castle. Whether not necessarily the Disney World castle, but a castle. You know, it's it's, it's in the it's in the logo. I agree, and that's why I think it has so much more. You know, it's it's more than just a focal point at the Magic Kingdom. It's more than just a building. It's more than an engineering feat. It's got a deeper 
dare I say, almost spiritual meaning to some people. You know, when they see the castle, when they step onto Main Street, um, you, you know, what it means to them when they finally get that, that glimpse or when their kids get to see it. But before we talk about the intangible qualities, let's talk about the building itself, how it came to be. Uh, you know, you know it, you love it. It's reportedly the most photographed building in the world. It stands at the entrance to Fantasyland. Uh, it's in the hub of the Magic Kingdom, and it's the tallest structure there at 189 feet tall. So let's kind of go way back because the genesis of Cinderella Castle really starts not in Florida, but in Disneyland. Because when he created Disneyland, Walt wanted all of his lands to have an obvious landmark. And he called these things weenies. I'm not making it up. He really called them weenies. And they would act as quote unquote visual magnets. And they would lead guests from one land to another, almost kind of a reward for making the trip. So the castle that stood in the center of the park needed to be the largest of all the weenies and would draw guests when you came in down Main Street into the park. You'd be able to see it from every land within Disneyland or the Magic Kingdom. And then you, of course, have other ones like Space Mountain, Big Thunder Mountain, dragging you towards Tomorrowland or Frontierland, respectively. So uh, the use of weenies obviously continued when Walt Disney World was being developed and, and as well as the entire Walt Disney World Resort was developed. You have Spaceship Earth as Epcot and... Well, now it's a source for Mickey Hat and MGM, and obviously the Tree of Life in uh, in Disney's Animal Kingdom. So, but unlike Disneyland, where, and I say this with, with all due respect, where some of the earlier mistakes were made, Cinderella Castle, they made some changes. They wanted it to be bigger, they wanted it to be grander, and in fact, they actually elevated it during construction because Walt noted that he didn't think the castle was prominent enough at Disneyland. And if you've ever been to both parks, you'll see Disneyland is really about 100 feet smaller. I mean, it's almost half the size of Cinderella Castle in, in Walt Disney World. Yeah, that's the, the very first thing whenever I visited Disneyland for the first time and having grown up up to that point on the East Coast and visited Disney World so many times is, you know, and again, no disrespect intended to our West Coast brethren. <laughs> we don't want you, to start when, a, you know, East Coast, West Coast war. <laughs> yeah, we don't want to go. But truly, when when you're when you're kind of grown up on, on Cinderella Castle, you, you walk into Disneyland and you're kind of like, where is it? <laughs> you know, because it is is distinctly much, much smaller on a, on a much smaller scale. And as you said, you know, Walt realized that in the, in the early going. I mean, I, I think even when he was envisioning Disney World, he was definitely putting it out there that the castle was going to be substantially taller. Right. And again, it's not a bad thing. It just, you know, it is what it is. But the, despite the differences in size, uh, both castles design-wise share a number of architectural elements and styles. Um, Cinderella Castle was really based on a number of different styles throughout Europe, um, from both Bavaria, where you have Neuschwanstein Castle, and the French castles and chateaus of Fontainebleau, Versailles, Chenonceau, Chambord, Charmont, and Ousay. Let's see how badly I my, my non, non-high school French did with those, but... Um, I didn't get that. Look, could you repeat that? <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> So Herb Ryman, when he was designing the castle, he took a number of design elements from Neuschwanstein, which means New Swan Stone in German. It's also known as King Ludwig's Castle or uh, Mad Ludwig's Castle, um, as well as some of the elements in the 1950 film Cinderella. Although, Jeff, like we were saying offline, there really wasn't a lot to take from that movie per se. Yeah, Cinderella Castle, the movie... um in Cinderella, the castle was what you would best describe as minimal. It was very much a very background 
um, sort of just almost as much as that movie had a great deal of detail in it, um, that aspect of it was very, very minimal. The interesting thing is, is that actually Sleeping Beauty, um, which came along five years, about four years, I'm sorry, four years after Disneyland opened, even though the castle was named for it in 55, uh, because the movie was in production, the movie Sleeping Beauty, the castle in there is very, very detailed. In fact, Ivan de Earl was the background uh, painter who his almost entire reputation with Disney is based almost on, you know, Sleeping Beauty and Lady and the Tramp, those movies from the 50s. He did an amazing job of the detail, and you see, you can see so much of that detail carried over into Cinderella Castle, and the irony being that, you know, for Cinderella Castle, there's practically no inspiration <laughs> from the original <laughs> source material, you know, the original movie. Um, nothing, there wasn't really a whole lot to take from that. So, as you're saying, so much of the inspiration came from real-life castles, you know, you know, the combination of the fortress base with the Renaissance spires, you know, that you're pulling from all those different sources. So it was, a, it was an interesting kind of taking from many different places to, to do what he did when her, with Herb Ryman specifically, because Herb Ryman also did specifically um, did the concept designs for Sleeping Beauty Castle initially in um, Disneyland. Right, and and like Neuschwanstein, which was really kind of, it was a number of buildings connected together to make one large traditional castle. Cinderella Castle does the same thing as well. And part of the reason for that is because when... When Herb Ryman and Walt Disney originally saw the scale model of Sleeping Beauty Castle, they felt it looked actually too much like Neuschwanstein. So what they did was, as the story goes, Herb Ryman took the top portion of the castle off, turned it around backwards, and that's how you have Sleeping Beauty today. And you'll see that the top half of Sleeping Beauty Castle faces in the opposite direction than it does for the real castle in Bavaria. But in, in Walt Disney World, it's that melding of different elements like you said the the castle base is like a fortress and as it goes up it gets a little bit more delicate and it, it's kind of uh, reflective of some of the different types of, of styles with you know gothic architecture of 12th and 13th century France and the, you know the, and the actual interesting thing is I'm, I'm sure you're going to bring this up but in tying into Sleeping Beauty you know one of the very interesting kind of bits of trivia is that initially the restaurant that was in the castle was King Stefan's Banquet Hall. Well, King Stefan, that's, you know, that's Princess Aurora's name. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that and was why... The, 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 I mean, what I've, I've done reading here and there, and it's always mentioned that, you know, that, you know, that conflict. And it was basically when they went to put the restaurant in, um, I think it was... I think they're saying that it was Dick Irvine's idea to actually put the restaurant in because coming out of... You know, from the Sleeping Beauty Castle in California, there really wasn't a lot of space in that castle because it was much smaller. But when they made this castle so much larger, they had all this room, so they had the opportunity to use it. And so he came up with the idea of doing the restaurant. And what they found was is that nobody beyond Cinderella, none of the royalty had a name in the movie. <laughs> so it's like, ah, oh, we we got to give this thing a name. So you know, interestingly enough, they they went and just sort of, I think, very low key named it King Stephen, hoping yeah. most. No, little poetic license. Probably... Could have been yeah. called Tremaine's, I guess. I guess they could have called it Tremaine's Banquet Hall or something. But, but um, all right. So speaking of the design of the castle, um, let's talk about its construction and detail. But before we get to that, we were talking just real quickly about the the elements. One thing I wanted to point out is that the the design of the castle and look of the castle 
It really goes beyond just the castle itself, and it really transcends through Fantasyland, because obviously the castle is very closely themed to Fantasyland, which is kind of a gateway to this medieval village. And if you look carefully around Fantasyland, you'll see a lot of the entrances, you know, like to It's a Small World, look like medieval tents. But if you go into the back and go kind of near Pooh's thoughtful spot, you'll see um, on the tops of those buildings, you'll see continuations of the castle walls and turrets. So if you're looking at the castle, it actually looks like it is all part of one large building. Uh, it really almost an extension of the castle itself. Yeah, actually, the, the one detail I love in Fantasyland, and of course it's because I'm the, the you know, cartoon geek, is as you're coming out of into Fantasyland, out of the, the backside of the castle, um, it's on the right-hand side is um, Sir Mickey's, mm-hmm. which has all the... Um, vines or whatever tying into um, the beanstalk in uh, got him animation expert I am I'm sure <laughs> Mickey and the beanstalk <laughs> Mickey and the beanstalk thank you <laughs> put the two words together concepts together Jeff and you I was thinking fun and fancy free this is the movie and I think that's where I was focused on but yeah just that tie into where you know it had the royal elements you know or the brave little tailor the couple of Mickey Mouse cartoons which were actually in fantasy settings you know and I just I really like how that you know, what you're saying is like there was a very smooth transition with the type of building and architecture. Well, as long as you mentioned Sir Mickey, you're, you're going to mention one of my real favorite details. I think people who even walk in the building possibly overlook that if you walk in the, the main door, if you look up, you'll see that the roof of Sir Mickey's on the inside is kind of being lifted up and there's the giant kind of peering yeah, in through yeah. the top. And it is great. I've shown that to people and, and people who've been there, they've never seen it before. They never realized that that was going on because they, they don't look up. They don't look around. They just kind of go in and focus on, you know, the merchandise or whatever they're going into the store for. So what they think they're, what the shop was. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, folks. You're there to, to pick up trivia. Look at this right yeah. <laughs> yeah, just ask my wife when I'm dragging her around taking pictures of these obscure things <laughs> all over the place. But all right, back to the castle itself. Like I said, the castle is 189 feet tall. Obviously, it needed to be the tallest structure in the Magic Kingdom. But it appears much, much larger than that. And that uses something, a concept called forced perspective. And I'm sure you may have heard that before. It's used extensively throughout all the theme parks. And what is simply it means, it's an old, uh, actually a very old filmmaking technique, which is that the bricks and other details get smaller and smaller as the buildings get taller. So you'll get a building that appears to be 300 feet tall, and it's really actually only about 100 feet taller than Sleeping Beauty Castle. And you can see this, uh, Main Street USA is a perfect, perfect example for that as the buildings get smaller and smaller. If you were to stand on one of the, the top, in one of the windows, for example, on one of the top floors, you'd look huge compared to the window um, that that's in front of you. Yeah, I think that's. I think I heard a story, and I don't know if it relates to the Tinkerbell person uh, doing the flying, but somebody made the comment that they had, at one point had seen that person getting ready to make the, the Tinkerbell flight, and when you looked at them in in context to where they were standing on the uh, the spire, you could really tell then how diminishing it was. Yeah, yeah, and that's why they keep it very, very dark at night because she would look huge. And even though that the woman that plays Tinkerbell is a very petite little person, she's only about 90 pounds, um, she would look huge comparison to the building that she's staying in front of. Um, because the, the top spire of the castle, for example, is really only about half the size to what it really appears to, to our eyes. 
And what they did too is they many elements of the castle they they scaled them down, they angled to really give different illusions of both distance and height. And like I said, these these kind of techniques are used in, in all the Disney parks uh, worldwide. And it was very very important for Walt and for the Imagineers to make the castle be very noticeable. And because they wanted it to be noticeable from a distance, they wanted people to be able to see it when they were coming from the transportation and ticket center, when they were getting on a monorail, then when they were getting on a ferry, um, because they really wanted to, you know, draw people into there, into into the park. And that's, that is so true, because I remember my first visit, we were riding the monorail, and it was myself and my younger sister with, with our parents, and that's what it was all about. We were looking out the window, waiting for the first first moment to say it was like almost like you know spotting a ufo or something you know <laughs> you know who's who could see it first and and i and the funny thing is, is to this day on all my visits i can't think of it's been very it's very rare that you're on a monorail riding with, with you have little you know kids or whatever that's what they're doing they're they're looking out trying to spot the castle as they come come around the monorail track all right, so let's talk about some of the other details and kind of fun little trivia bits about the castle. You know, speaking about the design itself, John Hench we talked about. Obviously, you know the name John Hench. He is a legend. His design skills, uh, you know, were second to none, and you, you see his work throughout Disney. But he really was a perfectionist when it came to color, and the colors of the castle were very, very important to him. And you, well, you can't well, you can't notice it now because the colors changed. We'll talk about that later. But when he designed the castle, he had seven different shades of gray that he used on the exterior of the castle to really simulate the different colors of the bricks. And obviously, that's going to lead me right to, because really one of the most often asked questions in the park and, and favorite trivia question is, how many bricks make up Cinderella Castle? And Jeff, I really hope that you're going to say that the answer is zero. Absolutely. <laughs> so yeah, concrete, fiberglass, and steel, buddy. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and uh, you know, it sure looks like it's brick. I mean, they do an amazing job. But um, it's uh, another one of these, you know, engineering wonders. The, the inner structure is made up of 600 tons of steel. It's covered with a fiberglass facade, and there's a, a concrete foundation. It's actually filmed with foam for, to kind of conserve the weight. Um, but they they sculpted the exterior rock to make it look like. It was granite, and uh, the important thing too is that the building was really built to withstand, you know, these hurricane force winds that they knew was going to be uh, an issue in Florida. But let's just, you know, dispel one of the other rumors. There's been a long-standing rumor that the spires could be removed in the event of a hurricane. Some of the spires were actually water towers. That is not true. Um, that has never been true. It would take, you know, weeks and weeks to disassemble them and take them down. The, the castle and the spires have been built to withstand these hurricane force winds and cannot be assembled. Well, and on, another, sorry. <laughs> and on another interesting note, I recently read somewhere online, you know, what was probably going to be the next great urban legend is that it's it's on an elevated platform and that, you know, when the hurricane shows up, they just it just drops down <laughs> on an elevator, down into the ground, you know. Imagine that in that... You know, swampy, marshy <laughs> Florida <right>. soil, <laughs> going another 80, 189 feet underground. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. The, the, oh, the rumors that surround, you know, well, well, they couldn't do it because Walt is frozen in the basement anyway. Yeah, absolutely. So. That's correct. Yeah. <laughs> but um, there are, um, you know, speaking of the spires, there's 18 spires on top of the, of the castle. And actually, it's cool because they were actually fabricated and finished um you know, on property, and then they were hoisted by a crane 
onto the castle. They were slid into place and then they were attached. Um, the tallest spire is obviously appropriately golden color and it's topped with a flag. This way it's assured that the, the, the honor of being the tallest structure in the Magic Kingdom. Actually, one of those flagpoles is actually a transmitting antenna for coordinating the, the parade that goes, you know, through the hub and up yeah, and down Main Street. Now, do you know about the, the, the towers and how they're numbered? The, there are, um, yes, and that there's two of them. Weren't there, weren't there two that were that were either taken out or, or damaged? Uh, there, yeah, there was 29 towers, but there's there were 29 towers. It was designed for 29 towers, but they only built, actually built 27. Um, towers number 13 and 17 don't exist. <laughs> they, they took them out before construction. It was because, based on their locations, they weren't going to be able to be seen from anywhere in the park because they were going to be blocked by other, primarily the, the other Fantasyland uh, buildings were going to block them. So there was just no visibility, you know, when it ultimately went to be construction, so they just eliminated them. But interestingly enough, they kept the numbering according to the original four <laughs> plants or blueprints, I'm sorry. I mean, it's really fascinating to me, and I know I'm, I'm a dork, but it's really fascinating to me how much thought they put it. I mean, they very easily could have just left them up and said, okay, you know, that's fine. But, you know, they really put so much thought uh, into doing that and, and making it so it, 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 it looks right. So it just, it just fits right and everything's just right with the castle. So. And I figure, you know, I can kind of throw this at you, trivia guy, is that, you know, <laughs> the tower you were just speaking of, the tallest tower, is in fact number 20. Bravo, bravo. Can you write that, write that down? <laughs> and all right, here you go. What, what the, now the clock in front, and we're going to talk about the clock a little bit, um, in, is actually number? 10. Bravo. All right, so if you've, if you've ever looked very, very closely at the clock, um, not just to see what time the 3 o'clock parade was going to be, but looked at the clock, you'll see, and you'll see this throughout the Magic Kingdom, that the Roman numerals that they use are somewhat different. Because instead of having the IV for four, they have four I's. They have four capital I's as, as four. And I've had people say, well, the, you know, the, they just made a mistake and these clocks are wrong. Or will they, you know, get them on discount or something like that? But <laughs> <laughs> that actually is the way four was represented uh, in early times, including colonial America. And you'll see that, for example, over at the American Adventure Pavilion um, in Epcot. Right. And if you look really, really closely, look at the hands of the clock. And I'll see if I can put a picture of this up in the show notes. Because you'll see, um, you know, zodiac symbols and whatnot on the actual hands of the clock. Uh, on the big hand and the small hand and different kind of moon phase symbols and things like that. So, again, dorky detail not probably everybody cares about or really pays attention to. But um, Let's go back inside the castle. Uh, we'll talk about, you know, the, the there used to be obviously the rumor that there was a guest room in there for years. That was not true. Obviously, that is now. But inside the castle, there's also three elevators. There's there's not just one. There's one for guest use that goes between the lobby and the restaurant on the second floor. The second is for, for the cast members for the restaurant. That's located in Tower 2, just to the left of kind of where you would enter from the hub. And the third elevator um, has access to the Utilidors and the Breezeway and the kitchen, as well as the Cinderella Castle Suite, which actually used to be the planned apartment for, for the Disney family. And in later years, infamously became the home of the telephone operator. That's right. <laughs> and storage and, and all that kind of uh, unglamorous stuff. And I would love, I still have never seen a picture of it being used, you know, for that purpose. I, I would love to be able to get uh, a look at, uh, you know, what it looked like during that time. But 
Um, speaking of the Disney family, uh, the Disney family is actually present in and around the castle because you can find their coat of arms created in stone. You'll find it uh, above the breezeway, and you'll also find it outside the castle. You'll find it inside Cinderella's royal table. Um, it's displayed over the fireplace. It kind of has... Uh, there's three red lions, and the, the, the background field is white. Again, I'll try and put a picture of that up in the show notes, or just make sure you go and check it out. Look for it next time you go. Yeah, and the other, actually, the other coat of arms that are there in that same area within the restaurant also represent um, the coats of arms of the other people that were involved in the creation of the castle, uh, Herb Ryman, Dick Irvine, Bill Martin, and John Hinch, as you mentioned. All right, Roger Brogy's there, Mark Davis, yes. Dick Nunes, Marty Sklar. Um, so, so there's a number, and, and it's nice to see. And again, it, these are things that people, you know, would normally, you know, just overlook. But it's nice that uh, the Imagineers wanted to, to pay their respects and an homage to to all these people. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about the restaurant kind of uh, as we get through. But just on the outside, something else to look for. They look for uh, 13 gargoyles that kind of ring the outside of the castle, which I thought is a, is a very nice, interesting little touch they put on. And uh, final geek fact, there's about 3.37 million gallons of water in the moat that surrounds the castle. So, did you ever ride on the swan boats? Remember the swan boats? The I Plaza did. The swan boats? Yeah, I, I think I would have rode them in 76. I know. I remember riding them, and I don't remember doing it on my first visit, so I'm thinking it was 76 when I did it. Because they, they were gone by... They were like, gone. <laughs> yeah, they weren't around very long, so... <laughs> that's, a, yeah, that's a Mike Scopa memory, too. Yeah. You know, so. <laughs> We are. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the other things that that's really notable about the castle is, are the murals inside. As you walk through the breezeway, through Fantasyland, you'll see a series of five incredible mosaic murals that that tell the story of Cinderella. These were designed by Imagineer Dorothea Redman. They were crafted and set place by a team of six artists and le- led by mosaicist Hans Joachim Scharf. And they go about 15 beat feet by 10 feet. And they're all shaped in this kind of gothic arch, kind of keeping with the theming of the castle. They took more than two years to complete and contain hundreds of thousands of pieces of Italian glass and rough smalti, which is glass which is specifically made for mosaics uh, used by Italian craftsmen. Over 500 colors. Uh, some of the hand-carved tiles are, made, are fused with sterling silver and 14-karat gold. Some are really, really small, as in, like, the size of the head of the tack. And one of my favorite, favorite little bits of detail is if you look very closely, and you should, at these murals, uh, look at the, the scene with Cinderella's wicked stepsisters, because there's a little added color there. One sister's face is red with anger, and the other sister's is green with envy. And I, I just think that that's just an awesome little touch. And to a certain degree, and we'll talk about the suite just a little bit, although we've, I don't think either one of us had a chance to see it yet, you'll see some of that mosaic duplicated and, and made reference to up in the suite. But let's talk about some of the changes that have taken place, some good, maybe some not so good, to the castle since it was created and opened on October 1st, 1971. Back in 1996, to celebrate Walt Disney World's 25th anniversary, Disney transformed the castle into a... Oh, yeah. 18-story story tall pink birthday cake. There was red and pink icing, giant candy canes. I know I'm bringing back horrible memories for many of us, including me, but that's a whole other story for another show. Um, it really, you know, this what they wanted to be, the centerpiece for this 15-long birthday celebration was, you know, covered in 400 gallons of pink paint. I mean, it was, it looked like a, to some, a big Pepto-Bismol cake. Uh, 
There was uh, sprinkles. There were 16 two-foot-long candy stars, candy bears, gumdrops. Uh, you know, I, I won't go on, but there was a thousand feet of pink and blue icing that was, that was wrapped around it. But the interesting thing is, I was not the only one who maybe did not think it was the best idea because reportedly there was more than 200 canceled weddings at Walt Disney World because of the giant pink castle and I could see why but but thankfully on January 31st 1998 the castle was reformed uh, transformed back to its original beautiful blue and gray glory I, I was not nearly as offended by that as I think a lot of people were <laughs> it's, I knew I knew it was temporary and I thought it was I thought it was so quirky you know what I, lucky if you've listened to this show long enough you know that I'm a Disney purist at heart and you know one of the things I'm going to mention you, you know you might be surprised at how I react to but I, I just it didn't cut it, and maybe it's just for personal reasons I didn't like. But anyway, we'll move on, because in October 1998, <laughs> they did uh, they did something that was a good thing. They changed the lighting to it, and they could now illuminate the castle in 16 million colors. So during, at the time, Fantasy in the Sky fireworks, it really added another element to it. They had a, com- a completely new computer-controlled lighting system installed. There were 60 color changes synchronized to the fireworks. Obviously, you can still see that now during Wishes. November 16th, 2004, a day that will live, probably not an infamy, but a day that I didn't like nonetheless, because they, they transformed the castle to make it look like it was toilet papered. Uh, Stitches come, King! Yeah, <laughs> Stitches King. They posted that on a turret. Uh, there was fake graffiti on the castle to commemorate the, the grand opening of, of one of Walt Disney World's finest attractions, <laughs> Stitch's Great Escape. Uh, it was a one-day thing. I know it's not a big deal, but, I, you know, I, I, I just I just thought it was irreverent, and I thought it was disrespectful. I don't know. The, 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 the graffiti on the castle, just maybe it's just because the, the attraction's so awful. <laughs> and, if, and if her wedding was that day, she might not have been a bridezilla to begin with. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Now, I'm going to ask your opinion about the next change that took place, and that was uh, formally unveiled on May 5th, 2005. It was up a little earlier. That really became the centerpiece for the happiest celebration on Earth in honor of Disneyland's 50th. What they did was they adorned the outside with polished gold trim, accents. There was a lot of swags and banners and tapestries. The nice thing that they added were the golden statues of Disney animated characters. You could see my favorites, Peter Pan, Tinkerbell, and Wendy. On the tallest spire, you also saw Ka and King Louie, Simba, Pumbaa, Timon, Sebastian Flounder, a bunch of other ones, including um, Victor Hugo and Laverne, which is a nice touch from Hunchback of Notre Dame. Uh, there was also above the front archway a giant stained glass mirror. It looked like a big brooch to me. Modeled after, like you said again, the magic mirror in Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. The cool thing was that the mirror changed images every 40 seconds to show all the Disney castles around the world as well as the dates that that park opened, uh, which was a neat touch. Jeff, what did you think of, of the uh, of the decorations and the, the brooch, as I like to call it? I really liked it a lot. In fact, I spent probably a half an hour trying to get as many pictures with my you know telephoto lens of the statues you're talking about. The the mirror, the brooch, just was wacky. It it was, and I don't think it was so much in concept, but it was just it was a little bit too overpowering. Right. Um, it just didn't work. It it really threw off threw off the front of the castle. So yeah, I can kind of agree with you there that I think it it wasn't a bad idea. It just wasn't executed well, um, and especially to me with how well the other stuff worked. I just I I love standing in front of the castle 
I mean, the kid, my kids and I just we all stood there for a good 15, 20 minutes at first when we first went in, trying to pick everybody out, right? Because they were so well done, right. and they were beautiful. I mean, they were they were very very beautifully done and and very realistic looking. And again, uh, I hope the Peter Pan figures end up on eBay at some point. But anyway, did, were you, have you been able to to see? I don't know when the last time is that you went down the new color pattern because in late two thousand six they changed some of John Hench's original color patterns. And if you look very closely, you'll see that it has a much more earthy tone to it. It's got a much more rosy hue to the outside of the castle. Again, my personal feeling, I kind of like the old gray better. I guess it's just the nostalgic in me, but have you seen it? Have you seen the new yeah. colors? Yeah, it's... it, And, and actually, it, it, I kind of went in expecting because I'd read about it here and there, and, and I read about it in context of somebody being very upset. They, they thought it was a travesty. And I thought it was okay. I mean, I, I agree with you. I kind of, just out of sentimental reasons, I, I kind of prefer... Because I did come, I came home and looked at pictures just to kind of refresh my memory and, and kind of saw, like I said, it's more of a subtle thing, but it, it's distinctive if you if you compare it. And yeah, I, I'm I'm, sentiment, I'm sentimental like you are, but like I said, it's 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 not the end of the world. Right, exactly. And, and if you look at Sleeping Beauty Castle and some of the other castles in Disney parks, you see that there's a consistency to the colors. But but like you, I like the uh, I, I like the original gray better. So anyway, just a couple of other little. Fun facts, just to kind of throw out at you. Uh, if you look, if you've ever had your wedding or, or seen Disney's Wedding Pavilion, it was a very clear design choice to to be sure that if you uh, get married there, that as a backdrop, you'll be able to see Cinderella Castle in the background. Again, that prominence, that height that, they, that was important. It was nice to see Disney bring over to the Wedding Pavilion. We talked briefly about Tinkerbell. Uh, she did not always fly from the castle since day one. Her first flight was on July 4th, 1985. Uh, dorky facts and figures. She flies about 750 feet, averaging about 15 miles an hour. Takes about 34 seconds for the trip. And uh, the requirements for Tinkerbell are very, very specific. She needs to be a certain height and only 90 pounds. One other thing I want to mention, too, just another a, a little detail maybe that people don't pick out. I, I'm one of these people that I love staying in the park until, you know, until the last possible minute until they kick me out. Be sure you stay around and look for the nightly kiss goodnight. Um, you'll hear Roy Disney's dedication speech played throughout the park. You'll hear a lot of classic Disney movie um, soundtracks. It's just a nice little thing they do. They use some of those uh, lighting elements on the castle. Just a nice little touch, um, something to see before you, you head out for the night. So... The, the one other thing, Jeff, we should mention, obviously, is the Cinderella suite that, that's in the castle because that's, you know, that's something that I and I know many other people wish that we could win as one of the Year of a Million Dreams. The apartment that was rumored there for, for the Disney family and used for storage and the switchboard and, and dressing rooms and whatnot was eventually converted over to this this royal suite. And I think it's just a brilliant, brilliant idea. Um, they, they've themed it incredibly to the inside and outside of the castle. The elevator is inspired by Cinderella's castle. The foyer has inlaid stone floors, wooden walls, uh, a big stone, although fake, uh, chateau-style fireplace. You'll see the princess's glass slippers there. The, the bathroom, kind of made to look like a grotto, um, is dominated by these three large mosaics of 17th century landscapes. They were designed by uh, Disney artists to match those murals that Dorothea Redmond created for the Breezeway in 1971. So it's all just a matter of figuring out where to be at the right right time. place and right time, baby. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm praying that next week, Jeff, hopefully maybe you and I can spend the... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wait, that's not going to come out right. Separately in the Cinderella Castle. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I'm sure you've seen pictures online and it just, it's absolutely beautiful and the attention to detail uh, and the amenities are just incredible. Um, it's got, you know, these 17th century details coupled with modern, you know, 21st century amenities like, you know, plasma TVs and whatnot. So... And the amazing thing, I think there's been at least one recipient that has said thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? All right, soapbox time. You know, <laughs> it's very easy, and unfortunately, some people like to focus on the negative, and they say, oh, look, you know, Disney can't give away these dreams. Well, you know, that's not tr- that's not necessarily true. And think about it this way. If you're leaving on the last day of your vacation, and you have to get back to work, or your kids have to get back to school, and... 20 minutes before you're leaving for the airport, they say, hey, you can win the night in Cinderella Castle. Well, not everybody can say, hey, you know what? We will postpone our, our, our trip home for another day. So maybe that's some of the reasons why that. But it's very easy to say, oh, well, look, Disney can't give, Disney can give away these dreams. <laughs> you know, people don't want to say no. People say, ah, you know what? I'd rather stay at Pop Century. That's maybe, all right, maybe Mike Scopa would say that. Other than him, everybody else you have to think wouldn't say no unless there was really some extenuating circumstances for them to say oh, so. Oh, man. Do I, do I got to move all my luggage over? I mean, come on. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> Kidding. <laughs> hey, I was say, Disney, if you're listening, um, I'm the short guy in the Disney World trivia stuff. Anyway. <laughs> all right. L- l- we, we talked about the design. We talked about the details. We talked about the history. But as I said at the beginning, I think what makes Cinderella Castle really a wonder is so much more than that. Because it's not just a building. It's not just, you know, home to a restaurant. It's really a symbol to people, a very personal symbol to people around the world. It's instantly recognizable, obviously. Um, You know, for many of us, when we see that, when we step on Main Street, we feel like we're at our second home. And the responses and the the words that people use to describe it, everything from, you know, breathtaking and and majestic. And it, it really does sometimes evoke an emotional response from people whether they're watching wishes or whether they finally get to some place that they've, they've dreamt about being and Cinderella Castle is representative of that and people have when they've talked about the seven wonders and, and made these suggestions they've posted them on the forums they've sent me emails uh, one person who, who's I'll read Daddy Brady said Artemis was the virgin goddess of the hunt wild animals wilderness the moon and safety in childbirth a Greek poet once wrote when I saw the Temple of Artemis at Ephesus rising to the clouds, all these other wonders were put in the shade. Is it a stretch to identify Cinderella Castle with this wonder? I think of Cinderella and the mice, her dance with the prince in the moonlight, and the shining beauty of the castle. Um, and again, you know, it means different things to different people. That's what it means to Daddy Brady. It means things to me. Jeff, I'm sure it means, you know, has a certain meaning to you as well. Well, it's, you got to realize, you know, especially of our generation we grew up with the wonderful world of disney on television and every sunday night you know the opening of that show was the castle now granted it was you know at that point it was modeled after the disneyland castle but it was just that kind of an icon and that's what we came to associate and in fact even more so to an extent than mickey mouse because mickey mouse wasn't on every show and but the opening of that show was tinkerbell flying over the castle and because it, it went on to become the corporate symbol to an extent. I mean, you know, at the beginning of the Disney movies, you know, they have some type of, you know, um, representation of the castle in the logo or whatever. 
And to me, what's really exciting, and I'm, I'm not sure if you've been to a, a movie lately where this change has gone into effect, but that they've taken that, you know, you know when they used to have just the very two-dimensional little, almost sort of like a flat, image. flat, very geometric, you know, sort of an icon, not so much a, an actual representation of the castle, you know, with a little rainbow or whatever going over the top of it, however they did that. They've changed that, and what it is is a computer-generated representation, and it's essentially doing the same thing. It's that same type of principle that was always there before, but they've turned it into a very realistic three-dimensional castle, and in fact, and again, no slight to our West Coast fans, but it is now <laughs> Cinderella Castle. Yeah, it is much more representative of, of yeah. um, What was very cool, and um, when I saw Meet the Robinsons um, last month, uh, we saw that and we saw it in 3D. <laughs> and we were, there was oohs and ahs coming from the rest of the people in the theater. Um, and I think it was because on two different levels, it was just this very new and very dynamic 3D experience. But it was also, that's the castle. <laughs> yeah. yep. And, and again, and like I said, it, you know, it has different meanings even beyond the theme parks to people. And, you know, it, it often does come back to the Walt Disney World version. And I know for us who are, are Disney World fans... It means so much, you know, to us. But I want to hear above and beyond what, what we were saying. What does it mean to you, listener? Um, tell us, you know, what does it mean? Do you, do you do you agree that it's a wonder? And overwhelmingly, so far you have. But I'd like you to weigh in. I'd like you to tell me. Leave a voicemail. I'll put a link up in the show notes at wdwradio.com to the forums where we talk about the seven wonders. And I'll put specifically something up about Cinderella Castle. And let us know what what how you feel. Do you, do you think it qualifies as a wonder? What is it? Is it some of the things we talked about, some of this detail, or is it something personal to you, something subjective? Um, because I think I, I'd like to know and kind of see how you guys feel. So, uh, Jeff, before I let you go. While we're talking about the seven wonders, I want to talk briefly about the next of our seven wonders. And what I need to do, really, is I need to announce what it is now, because I want you and I want the listeners to be a part of it. And you're going to see where I'm, where I'm going with this and why I'm talking about it now, because I think we can all agree that what truly makes Walt Disney World special and magical and insert your own word here is not just the details and the geeky trivia and the food, the attractions, it's the people, and, and it's the cast members, and it's the cast members that really make the magic for all of us each and every day that we're there, and I'm not the only one that feels that way. Many of you have written in, many of you have posted, and the first thing on your list were the cast members, and in fact, um, on the forums at DisneyWorldTrivia.com, we actually have a cast member appreciation, cast member appreciation forums. And there have been hundreds and hundreds of posts and threads and replies evidencing why we don't only recognize these people, but why we really need to thank them as well. Um, So what I want to do is I want to hear from you. I want you to call the voicemail at 206-202-4WDW. I want you to share with us, whether it be a cast member story, a magical moment, maybe just something special that somebody did for you or your family or your child to make you feel special or to correct an oversight uh, or just make your Walt Disney World experience amazing. You could just mention the moment. You could mention a cast member by name, something that you really feel illustrates why they are a true wonder of Walt Disney World. And we'll po- we'll play them on the show. We can talk about some of these. We'll play those those voicemails. Um, 
Again, if you want to go over to the forums, you can post there as well. I'll try and take some stuff out of there and read it on the show. But um, again, I, I truly feel, and I think many of us agree, Jeff, I'm sure you agree, that the cast members are such an integral part of the magic of Walt Disney World. Yeah, I, well before the year of a million dreams, it was even the twinkle in a marketeer's eye. <laughs> um, yeah, that is the reason we go back year after year. I mean, there is the there is the very tangible qualities of why I like Disney and the things I like, you know, that are manifest there. But it is the it is that interaction and that the way you're treated when you're there that um, truly. I mean, I I like Superman, but I'm not going to a Warner Brothers park every year, year in year out. So I mean, it's it's what really truly makes the difference. Yeah, and we'll, like I said, we'll save the discussion for the actual coverage um, of this as the next of the Seven Wonders. Again, call the voicemail, 206-202-4WDW. Post on the forums. You can send me an email if you prefer, and we'll talk about it all um, you know, on an upcoming show. Jeff, thank you again for all your help with talking about Cinderella Castle. Jeff's blog is at 2719hyperion.blogspot.com. Jeff, I will see you in about a week, buddy, down in Walt Disney World. We will finally get to meet face-to-face and uh, I'm sure have some fun doing some research down in Disney. Thanks, Lou. I'm really looking forward to seeing you next week. See, and it was very important that you said research. It's not a vacation for us. It's a research trip. It's agonizing. <laughs> Shh, my wife is listening. <laughs> All right, Jeff. Mine too. <laughs> thanks again. My children aren't forgiving me. <laughs> <laughs> my children don't know. <laughs> it's Lou, guys. i got to go for Lou. i got to take it. <laughs> and hey, if you guys are going to be down there, like I said, by all means, let us know. We'd be more than happy to meet up and uh, and get together in the parks. Thanks, Mike. Thank you again for all the feedback on the show, whether it be by email, voicemail, or on the forums. I do have a number of emails to get to again this week. Some of them have some questions, some of them have some comments, but the first one we're going to start off with is a tip, and this one's about the Disney dining plan. Bobby writes in and says, If you're planning on attending the Food and Wine Festival, then upgrading to the Disney dining plan is imperative. That's because most, if not all, the food options along World Showcase Promenade count as snack options. My family has done this the past two years, and we save all of our snacks for the festival. Not only does it save you money, but it also allows you to try a myriad of dishes from other cultures. Of course, if you're planning on it this year, keep listening to the WDW radio show and find out first what Disney decides about free dining. (laughs) That comes from Bobby. Bobby, thank you very much for that email. That is a great tip. And yes, free dining is coming. It does overlap with some dates for the Food and Wine Festival. I'll put dates for both the free dining as well as the Food and Wine Festival up in the show notes. Our next email reads, Hi Lou, love the show. I'm a big fan of the hidden details that the Imagineers hide in the parks, so I loved your walk-around discussion of the Disney MGM Studios. I noticed your comment regarding the lack of any current foot and handprints in front of the Chinese theater. They actually still have those ceremonies with the celebrities, However, Disney is not allowed to actually place them in the courtyard. They place them in other locations, like Theater of the Stars. This is due to the fact that the real Chinese theater in Hollywood was taken over by Grumman's, and they wanted to keep the handprint ceremony as an exclusive event to the real Chinese theater. This is also the reason the Sorcerer's Hat won't be going anywhere for a while, since Disney cannot sell photos of the Chinese theater. The hat blocks the theater, and PhotoPass cast members are instructed to block out any traces of the theater, or the photo cannot be sold. 
hope this helps, and I look forward to your next show. And that comes from Jessica. Jessica, thank you very much for the email. It's very interesting about the theater and the handprints. I'm, I'm very curious, and I'm going to try and talk to some people I know who are PhotoPass cast members about trying to block out the Chinese theater. I have never heard of anybody having their PhotoPass uh, picture not being made available because the theater was in the picture in some form or fashion. But uh, I, I want to thank you for the email, and I will report more as I find out more details. Joe Lilly, a.k.a. OBX Shark, wrote in and said, Hi, Lou. I'm really enjoying your podcasts. They're absolutely wonderful to listen to as I get my daily dose of exercise. I found the piece on concierge service very informative. However, I had a question regarding tipping the cast members that are providing the service. I assume this is done, but I don't know if leaving a tip is something one should do each time a service is rendered or more along the lines of a cruise ship where a single all-inclusive tip is left at the end of the journey. Thanks in advance and keep up the wonderfully enlightening and entertaining work on your podcast, Joe. Joe, thank you very much. Glad you enjoyed the segment on concierge. Uh, the only really advice I could give you is, is personal, and that's the one time that I stayed there. What I did was I gave a gratuity, uh, which was actually reluctantly accepted and said that it wasn't needed, of course, uh, to those that helped us out in the lounge rather than on a daily basis or an individual basis because we knew we were going to be there the whole week. Um, this is how I do it with mousekeeping. I usually leave them something maybe either at the beginning of my trip or definitely at the end of the trip, uh, just one sum rather than on a day-by-day basis. But obviously it's a personal preference and you could do as you see fit. Our next email reads, Lou, I loved your trip down memory lane with the discussions about Horizons. It was one of my first attractions I ever saw on visit my visit to Epcot 23 years ago and one of the things which I started my love affair with Walt Disney World. Like, like you and your guest said, Disney needs to get back to the attractions that immerse the guest in the attraction for an extended length of time and give a rest to the two to three minute thrill attack attractions. But the reason for the email. From Horizons, you played a few seconds of a clip. I think of the grandfather talking about the beach boy that the granddaughter was dating or something like that. I was working in the yard while listening and I didn't hear clearly. Anyhow, the grandfather's voice sounded like Gene Shepard from A Christmas Story, etc., I guess I could do some online research, but do you know that if it is Gene Shepard? Thanks again for the show. I've listened to several Walt Disney World podcasts, and yours is the best. That email comes from Frank in Orlando. Frank, thank you very much for your kind words. I really appreciate it. Actually, the father is not Gene Shepard. It's Bob Holt. The mother, narrator, is Dina Dietrich. The Easy Living singer that I talked about on the uh, on the segment that actually sings the, it's a, There's a Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow is Larry Cedar. And the Beach Boy, that you also made reference to, is Tom Fitzgerald. And I make a point to mention his name because it's interesting because Tom Fitzgerald was actually an Imagineer. And actually, he was one of the main Imagineers that really was the the, the head story designer. Um, He was later appointed, I think in 2001, he was appointed executive vice president and senior creative executive of Walt Disney Imagineering. But it's pretty neat to know that one of the Imagineers that worked on the attraction was actually in the attraction as well. Hi, Lou. I just listened to your segment on show number six, having recently transitioned to self-employment at home and still getting caught up on a new show about the bygone days of Roger Rabbit at the Disney MGM Studios. I couldn't agree more with you and Jeff Pepper and your feeling towards Roger, how perfectly Roger fit in with Disney's new park back in the late 80s and how much he's missed. To go off on a tangent, which I know you like, and would submit that the entire Disney MGM Studios park is lamentable since those very early years. You seem to prefer the positive to the complaint, as I normally do, but I guess I just need to vent that every time I go back to the park, I come away somewhat disappointed on how it has turned out. Yes, they've added a few great things, Tower of Terror, Rock and Roller Coaster, and Fantasmic, but I could go on and on and on about all the things that are wrong. 
One, gone are magic of Disney animation, the, at one time the hands-down most magical place in Walt Disney World, and Superstar Television, a tremendously innovative concept that could have easily been kept fresh. Also gone is the restaurant set in a movie, Big Business and then Aladdin, which would have been neat to see that updated too. The once majestic great movie ride is now not only sorely out of date, but a victim of incredibly bad zoning. <laughs> The dining locations to attractions ratio seems to be at least double what it is at the other parks, and perhaps most significantly, I'm continually frustrated by what I feel is very poor park design. I know it was built in a rush to beat Universal's Orlando, and it really shows. The other Disney parks have much more distinct and identifiable lands which suit their respective attractions. And despite being a frequent Walt Disney World visitor, Disney MGM is the one park where I still can't make a mental map in my head of where one sits in relation to another. A grade schooler could easily draw a schematic of any of the other parks. When I first visited, visited Disney MGM in 1989, it became my favorite park despite there being a limited number of attractions. The theming, atmosphere, and imagineering potential were impressive. I hope you liked last week's show. Despite my best efforts to keep an open mind, I can't help but feel jaded on each subsequent visit of what might have been. Lou, I'm really sorry for the rant. I just wanted to see if anyone else out there shares my sentiments. Anyway, thank you very much for all your devotion to your fellow Disney fans. You do an outstanding job, and I'm really glad to see you continue on with this new endeavor. Best wishes to you and your family, and that comes from Dave Stofka from Ohio. Dave, thank you much, very much for the email, and don't worry about the rant. I, like I said, I wanted to hear people's comments and, and how they feel about the parks one way or the other. And you may not be alone, and what I'd like to do is hopefully this will spark some discussion over on the forums or maybe via voicemail. See if people feel the way you do. But I will say that I do agree with you about some of the things that MGM is now missing. Um, for example, I loved the old soundstage restaurant. I agree wholeheartedly about uh, Superstar Television being closed and actually being left empty and the magic of Disney animation not really being what it once was. But I can also see your point about the layout. But you have to remember, too, that originally there was supposed to be a lot more planned for the Disney MGM Studios, and we touched on this very briefly during our discussion last week. There was supposed to be the streets of Hollywood. There was going to be another working movie set. Um, there were many other areas planned, like the Muppet Studios, that never came to be, unfortunately, and it's very, you know makes you wonder what the studios would have been like, what the layout would have been like if some of these other major areas and major changes and major attractions would have come to the parks. But again, I would like to hear other people's opinions, whether they agree or disagree with you. Our next email says, Hey Lou, love the show so far. I was thinking of a new segment for the show. You could call it the Walt Disney World Suggestion Box. It would be a fun way for us to think of ideas to improve the parks. Just some fun topics for discussion. I have two to kick it off. One would be for Disney to do some sort of reward points for staying on property. Other hotels like Hilton and Marriott do this, and you could use rewards to get free rooms and upgrades. I'll say right now, I think that will never happen. <laughs> Another suggestion is to deal with the wedding registry from last week's show. Okay, sorry, I'm a little late catching up on this email. Anyway, the need to let couples register for Disney merchandise. When my wife and I were getting married, we could not believe they didn't offer this. Hopefully you like the idea. If not, no worries. That comes from Ryan from Houston, a.k.a. Maestro34 from DisneyWorldTrivia.com. Uh, Ryan, I think it's a great idea. And if you have a way for you know that you think that you can improve the parks or your stay at Walt Disney World, call the voicemail. I'll play it on the show. Or what I'll do, too, is I'll start a thread over in the WDW Radio forums at DisneyWorldTrivia.com. Listen, Disney says they're listening to what's being said and talked about online, so you never know. You might just hear your suggestions taken to heart by Disney. Gary writes in and says, I live in the UK and I've just started listening to your podcast. It's the most interesting and informative Disney podcast. 
I'm visiting Walt Disney World in March of 2008. My family will be staying at Pop Century Resort. Please advise on your thoughts on the resort. What's it like? I've previously stayed at All-Star, Coronado Springs, and Port Orleans Resorts. During your podcast, you also mentioned Toy Story Mania at MGM. Any ideas when the attraction will open? Many thanks. Gary Brown from Birmingham in the UK. Gary, thank you for the email. Uh, first question, Toy Story Mania. That is going to open sometime, quote-unquote, in, in 2008. Uh, Disney has not given an official re- uh, opening date for that as yet. Obviously, uh, as construction continues, they'll probably make some sort of official announcement. As far as Pop Century, I absolutely love it. I think it's a far crut above some of the other Valley resorts uh, for both food, amenities. I think the theming is impressive, as well as the quality of the rooms, I think, are a step up above what you may have seen over at All Star. Now, as far as size of the rooms, they will be a little bit smaller than Coronado and Port Orleans Resort. Not sure if that is, is really of any sort of import to you or not, depending on how much time you spend there. But there's so much to do there. Um, Pop Century is in a great location. You've got two 5,000-square-foot arcades. You've got an integrated food, beverage, and shopping area, three pools, a kiddie pool, playgrounds. Uh, you can ride bikes around Hourglass Lake. The one bit of advice I would give you is if you can uh, afford the, I think it's about $10 more, maybe $15 more, depending on season. I, I would get one of the preferred rooms. It is closer to everything pop as well as the transportation. I think it um, it's definitely in your best interest, especially if you're not driving. Our next email comes from Gina, who writes, Hi, Lou. I just love your new show, and I have a question for you. Many years ago on my honeymoon, 16 years to be exact, my husband went on Space Mountain, but me, being a thrill ride chicken, did not. I remember being able to wait in the queue with him, and then think I was able to walk away when he got on the ride, and that there was a window where I could see a portion of the ride, kind of like the view you get from the TTA. Can you tell me if I'm remembering correctly that there's both a chicken walk to escape getting on the ride, and a window to take a peek at the brave people who are on it? We're going to Walt Disney World again with our kids in November, and that we've been there before with the kids. Hubby has always ridden alone. We've never wanted to have them just wait in line for no reason. Thanks so much, Gina. Gina, thank you for the question. Yes, there are more than one chicken walk. I believe there's two or three uh, ways that you can get out. If you do want to wait online after you pass um, the, the turnstile in the queue area and you kind of split off between the, the left and right or the Alpha and Omega tracks, you can go straight ahead before you start winding through the rest of the queue and getting on the actual attraction. You can exit right there. I believe you can wait there a little bit if you do want to watch some people get on the ride, but there is no kind of viewing window to actually see what's going on the ride other than what you see on the Tomorrowland Transit Authority. Our last email this week comes from Sparky, also known as Sean Iannucci, who writes, Lou, first I want to say how much I enjoy listening to the podcast and visiting the DisneyWorldTrivia.com website on an obsessively daily basis. Thank you. My first visit to Walt Disney World was, I believe, in 1979. I was seven years old at the time. Upon finishing listening to this week's show, memories of being in Tomorrowland came back to me. I remember an attraction, which I believe was in Tomorrowland, that you stood in a room and all the surrounding walls were screens. The only real memory of this show is a flock of sheep, or maybe goats. If you could tell me more about this attraction, if you remember what it was called and what replaced it, or even if it was replaced, since my last three trips were in 01, 02, and 05, and I didn't really spend much time in Tomorrowland. Thanks, and thank you again on the website. Sean, thank you uh, for both the email and the compliments on the show. It sounds like you're probably talking about one of the old Circle Vision films that played before The Timekeeper, where the laugh floor is now in Tomorrowland, right there on the Avenue of the Planets. That theater has been home to a number of different films since it opened in November 1971. The Circle Vision films that played there include America the Beautiful, 
during two during two separate times actually, Magic Carpet Round the World, also during two separate times, American Journeys, and later The Timekeeper, uh, which obviously, like I said, has now been replaced by The Laugh Floor. If you did go around September of 1979, it was most likely Magic Carpets Around the World. The scene that you're describing is one that does sound like it was from there, although I don't remember all the scenes exactly. But thank you, Sean, and thank you, everybody else, for your emails. I do appreciate it. Remember, if you want to send me an email uh, with a question, a comment, a suggestion, or anything else, send it to lou at wdwradio.com or call the voicemail at 206 206- 202-4WDW. Listen to the end of the show. I'll be sure to play some of your voicemails there. That's all the time I have this week as I am getting ready to leave on my trip to Walt Disney World. I will be there between Thursday, May 17th, and Sunday the 20th. So if you're around and want to say hi, please let me know. I'm also going to see Jeff Pepper from 2719hyperion.blogspot.com. He's going to be there as well. So according to Len Testa, the crowd level will be about a 5 and the Geek Index will be about a 9. Speaking of Jeff, I want to thank him as well as my other special guest, Pam Forrester from The Magic for Less Travel, for her help with some of our vacation planning discussions. Click on the link on the WDW Radio website for more information and a free no-obligation quote. They offer outstanding service, which is on par with what you've come to expect from Disney. Their services are completely free to you and offer so many advantages over booking yourself, not to mention the great freebies. Contact them with any questions you have or trip planning inquiries you might have as well. I need you to please indulge me here for just a moment as I want to say hello and a very special thanks to Staff Sergeant Jose Cuyar, who is currently stationed in Afghanistan. I mentioned his name a few weeks ago when I read his email about him listening to the show, his love for Disney World, etc. Well, I sent him a little care package and actually received something in the mail from him today. It's from the United States National Command Element in Kandahar Army Airfield, Afghanistan, It says, Mr. Mangello, I have enclosed a certificate of appreciation endorsed by my commander for your response to my email that I sent you earlier. It's our means to thank you for your support and concern. It means a lot to know that the people back home have not forgotten us. We always keep that in mind when we watch the news and hear the stories. Again, thank you. Sincerely, Staff Sergeant Jose R. Cuyar, Kandahar Airfield, Afghanistan. And with that came a beautiful certificate and it says the United States Army and the 207th Infantry Brigade Task Force Grizzly wish to express their appreciation to Lou Mangello for his support of Operation Enduring Freedom issued at Kandahar Airfield, Afghanistan. Jose, thank you so much. Uh, Know that we all wish you and your family as well as everyone else who is there with you a quick and safe return home. Your letter and certificate mean more to me than you know and will very quickly be hung in my office. I'm going to post images of the letter and Jose and the certificate in this week's show notes page. You know, there there have been certain events that have happened since I started my Disney endeavors a few years ago that are most special and most important to me. And this was definitely one of them. And I really want to say thank you. Of course, I also want to thank all the other listeners for your time and everyone else who's written or called in, posted on the forums, and reviewed the show for iTunes, voted in on Podcast Alley, and otherwise supported me and the show. I have to tell you honestly, this whole experience really is a lot of fun. And for our new listeners, please remember to go back, check out some of our earlier shows, visit the WDW Radio's website at wdwradio.com for links to old episodes, or you can download them directly from iTunes. We also have more information on the site, including photos and links to friends of the show. 
Don't forget you can still come aboard and cruise on the Disney Magic with me and Margaret Tinkerbell Kerry from November 3rd through the 10th, 2007. There's lots of special events planned as well as a few very special surprises. We're also going to be podcasting live from on board and you have a chance to win a $500 Disney gift card at the beginning of your trip for anybody that books by June 1st. State rooms are limited and are booking up fast, so visit the WDW Radio website for more information and a no-obligation quote. On upcoming shows, I have more interviews, more special guests, of course, more trivia, news, and vacation planning advice. We're going to have more of the seven wonders, more best of the best, plenty of new segments, more contests, and of course, a few surprises here and there. Also remember, the show is meant to be interactive, so please email me your questions, comments, or ideas to Lou at WDWRadio.com. You can call the voicemail anytime at 206-202-4WDW. Don't forget that if you call from your cell phone, chances are, even though it's a long-distance call, there will be no long-distance charges. You can call with anything from trip report, tellos from the parks, feedback, and more. Of course, please come by the forums at DisneyWorldTrivia.com to talk with other listeners and readers about the show. It's fun. It's free. I'd love you to come by and be a member of what we consider to be the happiest forums on Earth. Thank you all again for tuning in. Please help spread the word to your friends and family and on other communities. Have a great week. Happy Mother's Day. See ya! Hi, Lou. This is Steve calling from Indiana. Absolutely love the show. Uh, Just had a quick uh, comment. My mind's been racing since you talked about the Walt Disney animatronic, and I immediately went to to MGM where the One Man's Dream little... uh, little display and, and uh, walkthrough attraction is. And then I also thought about um, Carousel of Progress. And I thought, wouldn't it be neat if there was almost the exact same ride uh, or attraction that Carousel of Progress is, only put Walt Disney's life in there and kind of just go through the life of, of, uh, of Walt Disney and, and talk about some of the great events of his life. And I don't know, just thought it would be neat. Uh, MGM is Always one of those parks when we get there that we seem to get through the quickest and one more ride or attraction or attraction cer- certainly wouldn't uh, hurt. So, again, love the show. Uh, just wondering what you thought. I know you've talked about this for a couple weeks, so if you don't talk about it again, that's cool. But any park would be good to see Walt in. I'd be neat to show my kids who, who exactly he is. And I don't know, just cool. So, love the show. I'll leave you alone. See ya! Hello, Lou. This is Todd Hofer, Indianapolis, Indiana. Mouse to Todd on the forums. And I had a few uh, comments on past shows, plus a question of my own. And uh, first of all, I wanted to weigh in on my thoughts on the Walt Disney animatronic. I think it would be a great idea. I think uh, perhaps the most fitting, in my opinion, of uh, an application of him would be in The One Man's Dream, where they show him right now as that cardboard cutout on a Florida project set. Uh, it'd be nice to hear him, uh, you know, have that uh, animated in such a case as they use an animatronic action figure of him on that set. I think it'd be really nice and fitting. I think it would also drive a lot more traffic to that uh, feature also at MGM Studios. A couple other things. One is the contemporary tower. If this indeed uh, goes in like it's portrayed on uh, the show notes of uh, earlier in April, I uh, I find it really disappointing. It seems, at least in that vantage point, that it's larger than the contemporary traditional tower. And uh, frankly, I think that diminishes the iconic impact of the contemporary. Uh, I really hope it doesn't uh, take shape uh, 
in the sizes that are shown in that, in that rendering. Uh, something else I really enjoyed was uh, Jeff Pepper's solo outing uh, at Main Street USA as he talked about the secrets and and, uh, and uh, things going on at the train at the uh, train board. And that was really enjoyable. First of all, I like some of the movies that uh, he described the uh, bulletins gave reference to, Follow Me Boys and, and uh, whatever else was being discussed. And uh, finally, here's a question I have. Uh, are there, do you know of any reasons why the Fife and Drum Corps uh, no longer appears at Liberty Square? I know back in the 70s, especially on the Bicentennial, uh, with childhood shit trips to Disney, I would see the Fife and Drum Corps go through Liberty Square. They'd, of course, come out in uh, the regalia and, and then sit and stand and play. And I've seen pictures where I sounds like they may have chosen a, a child, maybe a boy or girl or something like that. And I just wondered over the years uh, how long that's uh, continued and at what point they stopped doing that. I thank you for all your time and all the effort you put into uh, making this show for for the listeners. Thanks again. Hi, Lou. This is George uh, from North Carolina. We met at the last night of Mouth Fest outside the United Kingdom, the Rose and Crown, met your wife, got your picture taken with me. I know you're excited. This one lets you know that my eight-year-old is really enjoying your podcast. The reason I can tell, we listen every morning at school, and the other day I came home and he was playing a video game called Viva Pinata for the Xbox 360, where basically you capture, raise, and grow your own pinatas, sort of like a Pokemon game. Well, anyways, he was so excited when I came home to tell me that he had captured a new pinata and he had named it Lou Mangello. I don't know if he spelled it right, because I haven't checked it yet, but he was so thrilled and so excited to tell me when I got home, and he wanted me to let you know about it as well. Honestly, I debated about telling you, because I didn't want your ego to swell any more than it needs to. But nonetheless, really enjoyed the podcast, uh, both myself and my year-old son, and we're looking forward to more. Thanks. Hi, Lou. This is Danny from Chesapeake, Virginia. Uh, I remember you talking about the wands on the spaceship Earth at Epcot. I remember if you, I don't remember if you said if you liked it or not, but I don't like it because it kind of takes the look away from the spaceship Earth, like how it was imagineered. Because we don't really need a wand saying Animal Kingdom on the top of the Tree of Life or anything. So, okay, I just wanted to share my opinion. Love the show, and I hope to talk to you later. Okay, bye.